Well, welcome to another episode of the Poisons and Pestilence podcast. And I'm very, very lucky that the guest today, Etienne, who has a second name I can't pronounce, uh, who will introduce himself formally in a second, is here to talk about the history of the establishment of the French Biological Warfare Programme and a particular individual and their role in that establishment. And after a few months interacting, we finally managed to find a time where we can both uh, sit down and record this. So, Etienne, it's wonderful to have you on today. Why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you've ended up looking at the history of chemical and biological warfare in your work? Okay, thank you, thank you, Brett, for uh, for having me on your podcast. So I'm a historian and philosopher of science originally, and I was I specialized on uh, the history and philosophy of biology. I studied the history of uh, prion protein and then of uh, of the strategic uses of uh, genetic engineering. That was my MPhil. Naturally, at the beginning of the 2000s, with the anthrax letters. I was interested in understanding the special applications of sciences and especially biological and medical sciences into not uh, curing, but uh, killing, creating um, dangerous stuff instead of protecting people. That's how I, uh, I began to understand that there was like state pro- actual state programs. I, I felt it was both interesting for a historian of science and a philosopher of science to uh, inquire in this area because uh, there was not much literature on it. There was like two articles in France about the, the French program on biological warfare. Mentions of, of, of this program in other books of reference, such, such as uh, Jean Guillemin's book on uh, biological weapons. And so I was looking for a PhD subject. <laughs> I began um, like inquiring about what had happened in France in this area. And it's interesting, you know, it's like I often, whenever anyone asks me, you know, what do you look at or what you're interested in? And I always say, well, the history of chemical and biological weapons of warfare. There's typically two responses. <laughs> yeah. The first one is like a bemused silence. And the second one is like, do you make them? It's like, no, yeah. no, 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 I'm not it's pro. Just or, I, I'm just I'm interested in the history and the ethics and the politics and how these, you know, these horrific things end up becoming policy. So you've written a wonderful book on this area and we can't do the whole book in an hour. There's not it's not going to happen. Uh, we're the best we're in the world. But fortunately for us and our audience, there is a central figure in the history of the establishment of French program. And so why don't you tell us about who we're talking about today and who's going to be the central figure in our story? Okay, so I think, Brett, that you're mentioning Auguste Tria, the conceptor of uh, the French biological warfare program. But he was not only that, he was uh, also a central figure in the in French engineering and science. So at the end of the 19th century, he was central scientific figure in the com- the competition between France and Germany on microbiology. This competition led both countries to a lot of uh, new discoveries at the time and parallel discoveries. And each country was claiming to be the first to have developed such and such. So he was the first to invent, for instance, formal, the commercial name of a solution of formaldehyde. He has an early patent on, on formal in, in uh, 1882. So that's about the time when the uh, Robert Koch Institute was created 
he was working Augustria at the Institut Pasteur. So there was Pasteur on one side and Koch on the other side, and two institutes were, were competing, and with such figures as Tria, who became later one of the heads of Institut Pasteur. So Trillip, he was interested in clouds, right? And is he remembered today, is it aerobiology? He's remembered as one of the founding figures in that area. Originally, he's a chemist, but he was interested in the chemistry of the atmosphere of air, of what is in the air and the best conditions for microorganisms to travel through the air and to infect people or animals. And he seems to have like a dual-faced interest in this. On one, he was interested in kind of processes of hygiene and sterilization. And on the other, he also became interested in more actually how the, the pathogens maintain themselves and could spread over large areas, right? Yeah, he did both research, like engineering research, meant to create devices to disinfect infected places through the use of vaporized formaldehyde. So he created infectious clouds, or he created the conditions for uh, infectious uh, pathogens to uh, travel uh, through the air. So he maintained like humidity and temperature and stuff like that, and then used his devices to try his disinfection techniques on these clouds. From the origins, so that's around 1905, he worked on both aspects of um, biological warfare, so defense and attack, or I mean, uh, uh, not, it was not at the time exactly attack, but on the creation of, of, uh, of conditions, of atmospheric conditions to uh, transport uh, pathogens to the bodies of living organisms. I remember he, he has an interest seemingly in some of the things that are happening in civilian sectors, particularly in agriculture. He seems to also start to see potential applications for his work in different ways in more military contexts, which is perhaps unsurprising because of increasingly heightened security competition in Europe at this time. He was also interested in generating clouds. Was it to do with um, disguising naval ships and those sorts of things? Yeah, that was a bit later during the First War, where he actually worked for the Navy to create clouds to hide ships from the enemy at sea. This production of artificial clouds is like a parallel story. He said Tria to have been inspired by agricultural practices, the use of clouds to protect crops from the early freezing in the fall in France. People in the countryside, they were burning wheat bales to prevent to prevent crops from springtime, springtime frosts, so early, early frosts, uh, I mean, late frosts, in fact. And this technique was also um, used in the aviation in France, was to be used by, uh, by planes, by early military uh, planes, to create clouds to hide from the enemy also in the air. If in your mind, when do you think he starts to work more closely with the military and start considering military problems. I think, I guess there's two streams. One is this, the cloud generation for obscuring things. But also, as I understand it, he was interested in disinfection. Yeah. And so are these the main ways he starts to orientate some of his work towards military applications? From the archives or the documents I, I've uh, I've consulted it's during the war but i mean he was ready already before the war to, to work on that so possibly it's he was the ideal figure 
but infectious clouds were not used during the First World War. It was uh, biological warfare was used in some uh, clandestine and uh, guerrilla guerrilla war uh, means, but not as a massive as massive clouds were used for chemical warfare. So I get the sense that in the lead up to the First World War, you have a leading scientific figure who has a, a range of interests which are at the cutting edge of biology and chemistry at that point, in particular looking at sort of meteorological and basically the spread of, of clouds through the air for various different purposes, which were increasingly apparent that they may be utilities. And it's during the First World War, of course, of course as France orientates itself more to a war economy and to leveraging science in the service of military aims that we really start to see these stronger connections being built between his work and both defending against particularly biological attack but also its potentials in helping to further develop the chemical and biological arsenals of France. Now if the history of the French CBW program is anything like the rest of Europe post First World War. I imagine there was some ambiguity about the future of the chemical warfare program in France. Was 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 chemical warfare a weapon of the past, or did it still have a role in, in future conflict? And post First World War is where we start to see the move towards him becoming a leading figure in. French biological warfare program. So what was happening in France more broadly in this space in the wake of the First World War? The the first use of chemical weapons during the war in Ypres, uh, in, in, in Belgium, uh, in Belgium and, and other uses uh, have homogenized the, 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 the public opinion. Uh, and so so this this was a really an issue. And and Tria was also involved during the war in in um, Defense on defense against uh, asphyxiating gases and uh, the production of masks, etc. So he was also he was not completely uh, out. I mean, he was not only working on on clouds to hide the navy ships. And his knowledge of uh, of the way epidemics uh, are trans uh, transmitted through the air was also of use during the war against potential biological warfare attacks. So biological warfare was not completely out of the picture during the war, but it was uh, it was considered a possibility, not uh, not something that um, so something to prevent, but not something that is uh, actually happening. It was also the case before. I mean, the, the biological warfare was considered in France in literature or in a, in a popular popular uh, publication as something possible like science fiction. But um, it actually became more relevant during the war with the use of chemical weapons and with the advancement of science and the knowledge of immunity, the, the growing knowledge of immunity and the growing knowledge of course of epidemics. That's where Tria was really at the center of everything because he was really the, the person of reference within Institut Pasteur and uh, with uh, also important positions in the French government as well as Institut Pasteur to begin to frame uh, French biological and chemical warfare the, at the scale of uh, the nation. What I found really interesting was in that post-war period, you start to have more 
significant articulations of what a national biological warfare defensive and offensive program would in, involve. And obviously this occurred in the context of ethical discussions. At what point do you start to see moves towards initial plans or proposals for an expanded French biological defensive and offensive program? There's no controversy about this uh, this date. It's 1922. I mean, this is the year of a report that was published by TRIA. And so in this report, which is not anymore accessible in archives, but cited extensively, TRIA elaborates on uh, all the doctrinal specificities of future biological warfare and the means required to create a serious biological and chemical warfare program. This report led to the creation of a commission, a national commission, the CEEC, La Commission des Études et Expériences Chimiques in French. And it's within this commission on chemical warfare, in fact, that biological warfare was initiated. So again, there's like this very important link between the, the chemical warfare and biological warfare that is already there at the first steps of the French biological weapons program. And of course, this was a period at which there was negotiations on the laws of war, which did deal with the potential of, of bacteriological weapons, as they were referred to at the time. So at a period at which there was broader public expectation that these programmes would emerge, Trillet was at the sort of helm of articulating a French vision of that. Now, as I recall, and I may have got this wrong, from the outset, that conception extended to both attacks on humans, but also on agriculture and, and, and pack animals, which, of course, were still important in warfare in that period. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That was already the case be, uh, during the war. I found on uh, on uh, the use of biological warfare, the, like the guerrilla use of uh, or the clandestine use of uh, spy, the use by spies of biological weapons during the, the First World War was aimed at cattle or, or animals used to or draft animals. This uh, aspect of biological warfare was, of course, included in the hypothesis of a future use of biological warfare, including to, to wage total war and to destroy the agricultural resources of populations. What I found interesting in, in some of the early documents you see is that Triller was had a very good understanding of the potential threat of aerially delivered pathogens, but he also did have an understanding of the real challenges, if that's the right word, of starting epidemics and how immunity within populations would prevent that. And so his um, articulation of that program did make clear that this wasn't an easy thing to do and did require significant resources to really understand. But I guess that claim was also made in the assumption that other states may also have had exactly the same sense that this was a project worth them investing resources into. And so that competition was a dynamic of that as well. So 1922, what happens in 1922? How is this move codified into an official programme? What happens? So yeah, TRIA um, made this 
report in 1922. And December of the same year, this decree was, uh, well, a secret decree was taken in France by the government to create this this Commission on Chemical Studies and Experiments, CEEC. This commission tried to centralize all the the existing French resources that were relevant to chemical and biological warfare, which was a network of separated laboratories all around France, but the main laboratories of, of that time with really prominent figures in the French research in biology and chemistry and medicine. And so what's interesting in the creation of this program is that other programs in the beginning starts with civilians and then it ends without civilians. And this network was created apparently without too much difficulty. I mean, scientists were not revulsed by the idea of contributing. I'm guessing this is also because it appears as a necessity, irresponsible not to inquire into in the context of the post-World War. Of course, in this era was the era of which you could engage with defensive work, and some of that defensive work obviously had offensive applications, but you could frame it as defensive work. And also, retaliation was also seen as a, a tragic reality of the situation that while you could be trusted not to use these weapons first, adversaries may not feel confined to that international law. What kind of work was the focal point? of these early programs? Uh, was it purely theoretical and conceptual or was it more applied? Was there experimental work? And what type of agents and targets were of central focus? Okay, so I'm sure that anthrax and the the the, the way to disperse anthrax through, uh, through shells and other research was carried on, mostly in France. Uh, the whole spectrum of Toxics and pathogens were searched quite systematically to find the best candidate agents. As I remember, a main question, which continues to be relevant in assessing the feasibility of chemical biological warfare, was dispersion. And didn't some of the initial French work basically adapt a design for German chemical munition? And as I recall, Trillet was an advocate of explosive dispersal rather than physical dispersal, which did shape some of the work they engaged in generating clouds of toxins and potentially pathogens. Yeah, the Croix Bleu, so like Blue Cross shells, were studied by the French. The problem with dispersal and mastering an epidemic was, and still is, in fact, a very big issue in this area of uh, biological warfare. But the, problem, the trouble with uh, biological warfare on a, on a large scale is, of course, that the immune systems of, of living organisms is already quite a barrier. And also the atmospheric conditions that was studied by, by TRIA was considered uh, from the early development of the program as a really strong obstacle. Yeah. That was also maybe why um, biological warfare research was done under chemical uh, warfare research or chemical warfare institution is, is that I think, and history seems to confirm that, more importance was given to chemical warfare because it is more reliable in the field. Yeah. Then the next two key periods of what we probably call the early biological program were the 
interwar years from 1922 to the outbreak of the Second World War, which ultimately resulted in the occupation of, of France. And so in that 1922 to 1939 period, I assume that work in this area became increasingly frantic and important because there was in the sense that the war was coming. In the interwar period, the, the development of this program indeed was decentralized, except for one institution that, that, that began to centralize research, a military institution, the Poudrerie du Boucher. Uh, Le Boucher organized also trials of uh, chemical and biological weapons under the same CEEC program in France, but also in Algeria. That's also when the Algeria was a proving ground uh, for chemical weapons and biological weapons in the early 30s. So another, I guess, event uh, or scandal which kind of typifies the concerns that French military planners had, as well as the British and, and, and the other allies, was that Germany was offensively pursuing biological warfare. And I guess the key reference point we have for this was this scandal where, was it Wickhamsteed? Was that, was that the chap? Wrote an article claiming to have insights into German experimentation with biological warfare? And wasn't Trillet somehow embroiled in the kind of public discussion that followed? Yeah, um, so that's um, in France, in the in the, the French uh, framework. So we can see uh, uh, alleged that biological warfare experiments were carried out uh, secretly in 1933 by, by German agents in London and Paris. So that, that was an actual an actual uh, agent, microbial, microbial agent, but not uh, not producing disease. Yeah, so they apparently there was a claim that the, that the uh, Germans had used um, non-disease-causing agents to model an attack on, I think it was the subway systems. At that point, as you mentioned before, Trillet was a public face as a scientist, but also of, of this air, this issue area, and I think he also spoke publicly on this as well uh, in the in the 1930s. Uh, yeah, Tria. Uh, gave his his expert views on this uh, on this alleged uh, biological warfare experiments uh, by the Germans. He said that it's very possible that biological warfare uh, be waged, but that it's limited, and that in order for for it to succeed, uh, certain certain conditions to be met. The lifespan of the germ is is important, uh, but also pressure, temperature, humidity, electricity, etc. Wind. In his answers, he's like he he minimized also the 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 importance of biological warfare, but still tried to uh, to say that it was um, Wickhamsteed uh, alleged realistically this uh, these uh, these experiments, which of course yeah. makes sense as a as a position for a scientist. Like he was saying, this is a, a realistic uh, scenario that they're mo- they're allegedly modeling, but that it's a technical problem which is more challenging than it might look. And of course, that's not going to hurt his case for continuing to do defensive work on that, yeah. on that issue. Exactly. That's, that was also in line with the, with the pursuit of the French biological weapons program. I mean, it's, it's, it was all, all the more reason to increase uh, research and budgets and uh, et cetera in France. Yeah. And in hindsight, we know, at least I'm, I think we're pretty sure that these were found to be spurious 
claims, or at least very badly supported or evidenced claims, but the effect of them was concrete and the effect in, in the UK was the same. It was this, as you say, brought it to public attention because it was in the Times or uh, I think it was the Times. And also it reasserted a fear within the general population. We think it may have, uh, certainly within the intelligence communities, reasserted a fear as well. And then, of course, the outbreak of the Second World War initially increased interest in these weapons, but the invasion of France changed the program. But it did not completely stop the program. France was divided in two parts, the northern part that was uh, called the occupied part and, and the southern part that was called so-called the free part which was, in fact, under uh, Marshal Pétain's governance, which was uh, like a Nazi, well, he was uh, uh, affiliated with the with Nazi Germany and uh, contributed to the Holocaust. And, uh, and uh, so, so yeah, French history in that period is uh, very much focused on resistance and how the French did resist to Nazi occupation. But it, um, I understand that in other contexts, it's considered a collaboration, a, a full collaboration with the with the Nazi. And in this context, this uh, Centre d'études du Boucher I was mentioning as a centralizing institution for the French as a biological and chemical weapons program. So south of Paris, not too far south, south like 50 kilometers south of Paris, controlled by the Nazi, in which scientists negotiated to pursue their research during the during Nazi occupation and succeeded in pursuing their research. When the Nazi began began um, invading France, uh, most of the archives at Le Boucher, Le Boucher gunpowder factory were transferred to to the free zone, to the so-called free zone. So the, in, so in this zone, there was no way for really for Nazis to check on the, on the, on the archives. So as much as possible, everything that was related to chemical and biological warfare was transported or or hidden in uh, Le Boucher. So the Nazis were not that uh, naive, and of course they had information and they knew that this facility was was not a civilian one. They allowed the, this uh, facility to carry on uh, research, but to transform research into just uh, industrial research, so civilian research, civilian products. And that was under a sort of a private company that was working for German uh, industry through several German companies. In France, it was interesting because so obviously, France hadn't used chemical weapons, but they did have this latent capability that was there and that was going to fall into Nazi hands. And some of it did fall into Nazi hands. And what's interesting is that there's some ambiguities, I understand it, that the scientists in France were told you can continue work as long as it has industrial or defensive applications, but offensive weapons is offensive work is, is prohibited. But it's not necessarily clear how closely that was followed by the scientists working in occupied France and the extent to which they continued work, which was either ambiguous in terms of having offensive or defensive capability, or perhaps even were interested in continuing offensive research under the Nazi occupation. And so what did you dig up in relation to that issue? 
that's what I think. That's what I hold in my in this uh, chapter of my book is that it was a way for French uh, for French research on biological for the French program, in fact, to maintain its activity during the war. So they accepted the conditions uh, of the Germans just to maintain like a, a remnant program uh, that would be continued. The indications that we can find in the archives about this this activity is that they kept stuff that are obviously like really useful to develop chemical or biological weapons, including uh, like uh, 200 liters of castor oil and other you know, other things that act active uh, 20 tons of active carbon for masks and stuff like that. The things that they negotiated to keep at the, at Le Boucher uh, station allowed to think that they maintained an actual uh, activity that was intended to, to be reconverted after the war into a military program. Yeah. And also, as I recall, there was also test chambers that were maintained yeah. and in the archive material you looked at i don't know I, you, you'll know better than me but there was discussion that you know scientists were asking permission to continue utilizing these test chambers for more civilian sounding work i think one was to do looking at whirlwinds and stuff like that um, but it's not necessarily clear if that was in this essence a cover for them to continue some of the work that they'd have been doing before the war yeah, yeah, we can see from the archives, from from the letters from scientists or from the the head of of the Boucher at that time, from uh, Adolf Kovach, that they are trying to keep as as much as possible the facilities. I mean, to the limit of uh, laws. There's also communication between Toulouse, the the area of Toulouse, between. Uh, um, where the archives were transported at that time, or supposedly, because those archives are really hard to, I mean, not, cannot find them, where they request to uh, transport really very, very powerful fans to make clouds and stuff like that. But th this request is uh, refused by the Germans because they know that this is obviously not for civilian research. There's a historical ambiguity here about the extent to which this was driven by scientists in occupied areas who were looking to keep hold of their toys, basically, and their their, cap their capabilities for the sake of keeping hold of them, or the extent to which they were interested in continuing offensive work. But I guess that's an ambiguous thing, isn't it? Uh, for whatever reason, they wanted to try and maintain it. So what's interesting, I guess, is we Trillet dies in what year? Does he pass away? In, 19, uh, in 1944, in, in Tunisia, in former, in, in, in well, I was not Tunisia at the time, but the, the, in, in current Tunisia, yeah. So he passes away at a point where he's witnessed a lot of changes in science and technology. He's witnessed two global conflicts, and his career has tracked and to some extent driven the emergence of the French programme. And he's gone from this brain, having a brainchild of a French programme to seeing it kind of emerge as a fully fledged program by the middle of the Second World War. So what legacy do you think Triller in particular left that French program? And I think we're going to pick this up in the next episode we do when we look at the post-World War era. But what do you think the key dimensions of his, of his legacy are in terms of the French biological warfare program and potentially in terms of biological warfare more generally? 
Yeah, okay, so uh, Tria was uh, it was elected at the, the French Academy of Medicine in 1937, so not uh, not so, so long before before his death. And uh, so he was uh, he was still the organizer of the French chemical and biological weapons. For, I mean, a French uh, a main figure. I mean, as as we spoke uh, earlier about the the Wickham Steel affair uh, that was in the 90, early 30s. Tria was still active in these years, so before uh, his death. 15 years or 10 to 15 years before his death and so he's, he he was the main figure to he, to organize the institutionally also the program in the in the interwar period i mean his main legacy is that he gathered scientists and engineers and the military on this topic but he didn't completely gather them in terms of geography the institution of Le Boucher uh, Center was a form of centralization, but this centralization of the of the program was uh, put into place after the war. The principle of creating a, a network of medical and chemical scientists or bio, bio, biological scientists all around the country, and was was uh, I mean the found the founding principle of the renovation of the program in 1947. When commission after the war was created on um, modern warfare. Thanks for that. So I think we've we've done a good job here at reviewing the establishment of the French program and taking it through, uh, focusing in particular on on the leading light of that of that program up until the Second World War. And next time that we get you on the show, we'll have you talk about the reinvigoration of the French program, which was certainly influenced by the early work of, of Trillet, and looking at how that moved into the nuclear age and the Cold War era and the character of the French program and its field research and those sorts of things. So I guess all that's left for me to, to say is, you know, uh, thank you so much for making the time today to come and speak to me. I've, I've learned a lot. We're going to plug this book twice, once now and in the next episode as well. And Maybe if you're planning to listen to the next episode, you could buy the book before that so you could really get the most out of it. So thank you very much. And I look forward to seeing you again uh, very soon, Etienne. Thank you very much, Brett. And uh, yeah, I look forward to, to discussing the, the second uh, episode of the French Biological Weapons Programme.